You don't have to be quiet on the set, but just know everything you say from this point forward is being recorded. <laughs> but it'll be edited out. Oh, he's, he knows how to edit. Ooh. He's special. Thank you. 
Good evening. Hey, thanks everyone for, for coming out tonight. Uh, we're going to get started. We're just a, we're a couple minutes behind, but that's all right. We are giving people time to get in and get settled and everything else. But uh, thank you again for, for coming out. This is, uh, I think, this is our fifth annual uh, DFW Area Reformation Conference. So we've been holding them since uh, this will be 2013. Uh, Carl Truman came uh, down. Uh, we've had Craig Troxell, uh, Jonathan Master. I think we're missing one. I'm blanking on one. Um, but uh, tonight uh, and, and tomorrow morning, uh, we have uh, 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 Dr. Ben Dunson. Um, I don't have to look down at the paper to remember his name. I've known Ben since 2003, I believe, give or take. We started Westminster uh, Philly together, um, 
And uh, Ben, at that point, when we first got started, he was a, 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 an unmarried young man. I, I think you knew Martha. You guys were at Texas A&M together. Uh, both Ben and Martha are, are yeah, yeah, I heard it. Uh, they are Texas natives and, uh, you know, died in the wool A&M. Uh, you know, they, they've been indoctrinated into the cult of, uh, of A&M. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Ben, uh, I mean, you came from college, A&M, straight to Westminster, Philly. They did a, a Master of Arts in Religion at uh, Westminster and then followed that right up uh, a year later, graduated with a THM, uh, a Master's of Theology, uh, which is a, it's a, it's a heavy-duty uh, degree. Um, and, uh, and then uh, he and, and Martha, uh, and at that point you had Liam. Uh, Liam was born in the Philadelphia area. They moved to England so that he could study for his Ph.D. at the University of Durham. Um, uh, so Ben and I, you know, I mean, you have seminary friends, uh, and, and, you know, seminary friends are good friends, but you're so busy working that you don't, you, all you know is each other in class. Uh, uh, we overlap some in church. Um, we attended the same church for part of the time that we, that, uh, we were there. And, uh, and then have just kept up with one another over the years. Um, Martha, Ben's wife, uh, uh, worked with my wife, Jennifer, in the academic affairs office at Westminster uh, and worked, worked with one another very closely for, was it two or three years? Uh, while you were there, while we were there, and uh, so they, so when we about a year ago, it was about this time, a year ago, uh, give or take a month, um, uh, at an evening service, the Dunsons just sort of showed up. They walked through the doors, and and we were completely surprised. And then they said that that Ben was almost certain to be offered a position at, at RTS in Dallas as their first uh, resident professor professor there. And sure enough, I think it was within a few days you got the official word that you'd been offered the position. And so Ben and Martha moved from from uh, Florida uh, and blanket is uh, uh, southeast. Yes, Florida. Stewart, Florida. I want to say Sanford, Florida. No, that was right. Stewart, Florida, southeast, uh, pretty far south, right? So you feel like you're in the north now, being in Texas, because you were so far south in Florida. But moved uh, moved here. Uh, I think it was what December of last year, uh, and then Ben uh, settled into RTS and began teaching classes uh, in uh, early 2018. Um, at, uh, at RTS in Dallas. Um, ben is one of these guys, and I was thinking about, you know, I'm never good at introductions, but um, Ben's one of the, you know, uh, just as I was describing him earlier today, uh, kind of a, a sleeper. Um, and what I mean by that is, I always regarded Ben as just, he's kind of like me, you know? We, 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 we got by in seminary, we did okay. Uh, but then Ben, you know, so he graduates, and, and then he goes on to get his, THM and I was like, wait a minute, no, there's something, you know, like, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm a dummy, but I'm not, you know, I, the, your pastor has reached his limit in terms of degrees. I'm not going any further. I don't have any desires. Uh, and uh, it just, you know, I, because of Ben's humility, you, you don't, um, you know, I just, yeah, he's just, he's just a regular guy, you know, he's just one of us. And, and so it was, I think it was when you went on for your, your THM, I was like, oh, wait, no, no, so, <laughs> there's more, there's more to this guy than I was giving him credit for. And then when he went on to get his PhD, uh, and, and I think RTS recognized what, what I slowly, it took me a while to recognize was, you know, they've got a, they've got a world-class scholar in Ben Dunson. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament uh, there at RTS. Um, he's uh, at this point is very you know fairly fresh in the academic career. He's written a healthy number of articles for the Westminster Theological Journal and other publications. Um, his dissertation has been published, um, and uh, so, I mean he he's he's not afraid to take on the likes of, of N.T. Wright and the the new perspective on Paul, 
He's written articles on uh, republicationism as far as you know, the mosaic, uh, is the mosaic law a republication of the covenant of works, those kinds of things. So he's, he's not afraid to take on uh, some heavy duty uh, issues. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it is a great privilege, Ben, to have you here with us uh, tonight and then tomorrow morning. I just want to run down uh, the schedule tonight. Um, Ben's going to give one, one lecture tonight, Strangers of a Strange Land. Hopefully you've all gotten uh, handouts uh, tonight. Um, uh, so you can kind of track this. Uh, and at the end, uh, the plan is um, to, to just, if you've got any questions, we'll probably, we probably won't let it go on, you know, for a super long time. If, you know, we may take, Bryn may take a couple or three questions uh, from you guys. And then tomorrow morning, uh, well, sorry, reception after that in the, in the uh, fellowship hall. Uh, we've got some snacks and coffee and tea and things like that. Um, and then uh, tomorrow morning, uh, we'll have a breakfast. We'll have some donuts and things like that for you. Anybody who gets here before 9.30, uh, you can grab some donuts and coffee and get yourselves ready, uh, fueled up for, uh, for two lectures tomorrow morning, uh, starting at 9.30, and then the second will be at, will be at 11 a.m., and we'll wrap up right around noon or, or, or thereabouts. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, uh, the schedule over the next two days. And, and you can kind of see, uh, just to have a, a basic idea of where, where Ben's going to take things over these next couple of days. Um, so we're, we're thrilled, thankful that, to have you here. Uh, we're thankful to have the Dunsons with us. They worship regularly with us in the evenings on Sunday nights and uh, traveling all the way over from East Dallas to do that. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, but this is a, uh, one of these uh, a conference that I've been looking forward to uh, however long ago as we first set this up. Uh, it's very exciting to have you here. Um, so let me, uh, before we... Uh, before I call Ben up, let me lead us in prayer this evening, and uh, just pray for God's blessing over this event. So let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord. Uh, we thank you for uh, how you uh, endow uh, folks with gifts and abilities and, and learning and, and the ability to, uh, to gain knowledge, uh, to gain knowledge about your word, to gain knowledge about you. We thank you for uh, the blessing of having uh, Dr. Dunson here with us tonight. Uh, we thank you for his family. Uh, we thank you for the, the friendship that our, that our families share with one another, Lord, and, and what a privilege it's been to know him all these years and to know his wife and his children. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified uh, during this conference, uh, tonight and, and tomorrow, that you would be exalted. Lord, our desire is to praise your holy name, to know more about you, to understand what you have called us to do and how you've called us to conduct ourselves in this fallen world. We pray that you'd be with Dr. Dunson and bless him as he, as he teaches from your word. We ask you, Lord, that, that even as he teaches, that, that, that you would be glorified uh, through these lectures, that you'd be glorified as, as we listen and hear. May your blessing uh, be richly upon us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's my pleasure to uh, invite uh, uh, Dr. Ben Dunson to come up with us, and uh, please, brother, instruct us from God's Word. All right. Thanks, Jim. Well, when Joe said um, that I was a sleeper, I was afraid he was going <laughs> to let you in on uh, my little secret, uh, <laughs> the, the secret of my success, uh, actually, which is my daily 15-minute power nap. Um, so... Um, now I've let you in on my little secret. Um, yeah, we, I've, we've known the Trailmans for a long time, and it's a, it's a privilege to be asked uh, by Joe in the session to uh, speak with you this evening and tomorrow. 
um, I think this uh, will be a, a good time because it's, it's God's Word and God's Word is living and active and it is, um, is going to be, um, I hope, a time where we will all be encouraged from God's Word. Uh, we, we hear a lot about identity these days and if you, if you watch the news and you, you read on, on the websites, um, you probably hear a lot about identity politics, right? Um, the, the idea that there are different characteristics of different people that define what they are and, and who they are. Um, and it can be anything. It can be uh, racial, it can be religious, it can be um, uh, various forms of so-called sexual identity, things like that, where people, um, they, they've come to identify themselves in a certain way, and they say, this is who I am, the core of my being. And it, it affects the way that people think about politics and, and the way that people think about interacting with other people in the world. And it can become somewhat acrimonious, as you, you've probably seen. Um, you know, this is my identity, and this is where I stand, and this identity trumps your identity. Uh, because I've suffered more than you have, or, or, or this group has suffered more than, than this group. And sometimes you even have people talking about intersectionality. So, do you have two identities? Well, maybe if you've got two, then that trumps that other person that only has one identity where they've been oppressed. Well, you've been doubly oppressed. And, and so it, it can go on and on and on. Um, identity is, is just, it's in the air. People are talking about it all the time. And so as a Christian, I think it's good for us to come to God's Word and to think, well, what, what does God's Word say about our identity? How are we defined as the people of God? To try to, to, to get some, some bearings in this world, um, we, we can, of course, say that, that the fundamental identity of the believer is, is a Christian, is someone who is in Christ. And that, that's, that's the foundation. That's certainly the most important thing about us as believers. We don't define ourselves um, according to any number of characteristics um, uh, uh, that, that are subordinate to that. We're in Jesus Christ, every one of us, from every tribe, tongue, nation who believes in Jesus Christ. That's what defines us uh, more than anything else, is our, our faith in Jesus Christ, is our Savior. Um, and yet, the Bible has other identity markers for the Christian, um, not to be used um, somehow to trump other people and to, to show our superiority, anything like that, but th there are some important markers that give us a sense for who we are and how we're to live in this world, how we're to make sense of our place in this fallen creation. And so I want to look at three of those, one of them tonight and two of those tomorrow morning. And tonight we're going to look at First Peter. And the identity marker in First Peter is that of exile. Now, I've titled this uh, paper, uh, this, this talk, uh, Strangers in a Strange Land. And I thought it was really creative. I once uh, preached a sermon on the first two verses of First Peter, and I thought, I've come up with this great title. It, it's, a, it's a science fiction novel. I've actually read the book, but uh, it's from the 50s or the 60s. I can't remember exactly. So I thought, this just really captures the sense of what the Christian is. A stranger in a strange land. It's in its science fiction book. Um, it, it's aliens, and they're somewhere where they don't belong. And so they, they obviously don't fit in. Um, so I thought, oh, that's great. That's, that's a Christian. We don't fit in in this world. And, uh, but then I started Googling, and basically everyone that preaches on this calls their sermon, Strangers in a Strange Land. So my, um, my uh, clever title was not so clever after all. Um, maybe we call it then a heavenly home for the homeless, but I'm sure if we look that one up too, we'll probably find the same thing. 
Either way, um, that, that captures the sense uh, of what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world, in a fallen age. We are strangers in a strange land. It, this world might not seem strange to us. It's very easy for us to kind of become lulled. Um, you, you can kind of start drifting off into sleep in a way and, and, and forget that we are called to be different in this world. That we are meant to be strangers in a strange land because of our Savior and our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us different. Uh, it has to make us different. So I, I want to look with each of these talks, I want to look at a distinctive identity marker for the Christian, first of all. Um, and, and that's going to be after we've kind of set the stage by looking at the context of each of these letters. What is it that the Christians that Peter wrote to were facing? What, what difficulties were they facing? Why is it that Peter thinks that calling them exiles would be so useful for them, so uh, important for their own sense of who they are? You know, what is it that they're struggling with? What is coming at them from the outside? So how, how are they meant to relate to the outside world in a way? And, and, and so we'll, we'll look at that, then we'll look at the, this identity marker, being an exile, and then we're going to see how that is worked out in practice in First Peter. What does that mean for us as Christians, day-to-day -day living, to be in exile? So, so what is, what's going on in First Peter? What's the situation um, that, that he's writing into? Uh, he is writing from Rome. We see this in chapter 5, verse 13. He says that he is writing from Babylon. So it might seem like um, that's not Rome. Uh, but Babylon is basically a code here for Rome. Uh, Babylon, uh, we'll see this in Revelation. It's also used in a similar way. It's kind of a, a code word. Um, they're in the capital, and they are sending their greetings to um, uh, Christians um, elsewhere. Now, historically, um, it was uh, also said that Peter wrote from Rome, that that was where he was ministering. Uh, even uh, Mark's gospel is thought to have been uh, Mark sitting under the teaching and the preaching of Peter in Rome and receiving this uh, teaching and putting it into the form of a gospel and uh, giving it to the Christians who were in Rome and, and elsewhere. So, so Peter is uh, doing this. It's got to be before the year 64 or so, because that is when at least most people think Peter died under Nero's persecution. Uh, Nero persecuted the Christians. Uh, he um, was trying to blame them for Rome being burned significantly. So the city was, was massively uh, destroyed and, and harmed in a fire. And Nero blamed the Christians, at least um, among other people, for having done this. They weren't very popular, and so it was easy to kind of stick this on them, and, and so he persecuted them. Well, traditionally it's been thought that Peter died in that persecution. So he had to have written this sometime before for the year 64. Uh, you know, what's, the, what's the situation for Christians in, in a place like Rome? Or what's the, the situation for Christians in general in the Roman Empire at this time? Well, we don't know a lot. Historically, There aren't a lot of historical sources outside of the Bible that tell us about what was going on at that point in time. Now, we do know that the first kind of systematic persecution of Christians um, was Nero's. Uh, that's the first one we have any sort of historical evidence for, for around the year 64. Uh, but if we were to go to the book of Acts, we'll see that there's quite a bit of sporadic persecution. Christians are facing all sorts of trouble in the book of Acts. Um, this is very useful for me. Uh, just about two weeks ago, 
the, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society had an article come out which was looking at every single instance of persecution in the book of Acts, and it, and it just mapped all of that out. And it was really useful for what I'm trying to do here tonight. And, and the, the scholar who wrote this, he listed everything that's going on there. He said, there's, you see slander, you see threats against Christians, um, they're being banned from missionary activity, uh, people are kind of raising up mobs to, to intimidate them, uh, they're being visited in their houses by government officials, uh, arrested, stripped of their clothes, they're being flogged and beaten with rods, stoned, put in prison, uh, legal proceedings against them, uh, all sorts of things, plots of murder, and in two instances at least, Christians are killed. We, with Stephen, which is basically mob violence, and then James, which is a, basically government-sanctioned uh, killing uh, of James. Um, that's, that's the basic picture in Acts, though. It's kind of sporadic. Things are going on here and there in these different cities. In some cities, the government officials will protect Christians, uh, mainly because they don't want trouble. In other cities, there's, there's more intense persecution going on, but nothing um, system-wide, nothing like in, in Rome, where you've got this uh, intense persecution of Christians under Nero. That, that's the basic situation that Peter is writing into. You know, for some Christians, it's going to be harder than for other Christians. They're going to face any number of these kinds of troubles, whether it's just people slandering them or um, kind of uh, bringing them to court, bringing them before the officials, uh, things like that. That's exactly what we see in Peter. Uh, that really maps on to the letter really well. Um, but before that, who is Peter writing to? Uh, he tells us in the first verse. He's writing to those of the dispersion. Um, so it, what is the dispersion? The, the diaspora. Maybe you heard it called that, the diaspora. Well, the, the diaspora was the, the sending out Jews to all over the, the Roman Empire. They, they kind of spread and they kind of scattered over time. And that became known as the diaspora. And so they were in all, all countries around the, the known Roman Empire. Um, Peter takes that, that idea of being scattered, spread out all across the place. And he applies that to Christians. He says Christians are a dispersion. They're dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and so on. These are places in modern Turkey. Um, and uh, Christians are elect exiles spread out, scattered out into all these different places. Um, this is a, so it's a, it's a Jewish designation applied to Christians because this is Gentiles as well. This is not just Jews, this is not just Jewish Christians, but Jews and Gentiles um, are being described as a dispersion. And that's a unique uh, thing to call them, too, because they're not at home. They're cast out. That fits very well with that idea of calling someone an exile, um, because that's going to be very important for Peter, is that we're not at home, no matter where we are. We're not at home as Christians. And, and they're feeling this. In Peter. They are experiencing trials. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 6. So, in this you rejoice. That's the salvation that we have in Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials, if necessary, for a little while. That's, that's the basic situation. Um, not 
widespread attack on the Christians, necessarily not. Government-sanctioned um, things like with Nero, where they're trying to wipe them out or, or, or punish them in some way. But it's possible. They might face these kinds of trials. Uh, later in the letter, in chapter 4, uh, Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, it could be that he's thinking in, in terms of something more intense there, but uh, probably the language of fiery is because he's, he's talking about um, smelting metal. He's talking about gold being purified through fire, just like he is in chapter 1. Um, not so much that the trial is a trial that's going to include fire or, or anything like that. Uh, but but they're, they're facing trials. They're facing difficulties and troubles. What, what does that mean in, in the real world for them? What kinds of trials? Well, they're being slandered. Chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, he said, oh, that's 2 Peter. This will help if I'm in 1 Peter. In chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Peter... He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so they're slandering the Christians. They're saying that the Christians are, are evil, they're wicked, uh, and they're, they're lying about them. So that's, that's one of the trials they're facing. Um, in chapter 2, verse 19, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly. Um, so they haven't done anything wrong, but people are accusing them of some sort of crime or some sort of wickedness, and that's causing uh, real hardship on them. Uh, people are lying about them and, and saying that they are wicked, that they need to be punished. We see that kind of thing in the book of Acts, don't we? That Christians are brought falsely before court and accused of stirring up trouble, turning the world upside down even in the book of Acts. Um, in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So uh, clearly that there are people who are reviling them. Reviling them, they're, they're uh, mocking them. That's what that word means, to, to mock them, to insult them. Um, and they're told not to respond in kind. Um, even later in uh, chapter 3, in verse 13, there are people that are harming them. Um, there are people who are causing them to suffer, verse 14, to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so they're told not to, to have fear of this. Um, in chapter 4, verse 4, uh, they are maligned. Um, to malign someone, kind of an old word, but to malign someone is to, to insult them, to say false things about them, to lie about them. Verse 14 of chapter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's the, the basic picture. Uh, most of this, you might notice, is verbal. It's verbal attacks on Christians. It's telling lies about them and insulting them and, and so on. Um, they're probably not facing death at this point. It doesn't seem that way, at least from what Peter says. Um, and apart from those two instances in the book of Acts, we don't see Christians... Um, that early on, who have died. Now, they try to kill others, right? They try to kill Paul in the book of Acts. People do that, and they try to kill Peter. Uh, but Paul and Peter are able to escape. But it's not this uh, kind of systematic persecution. 
Well, when you're dealing with that, though, it's still really intense. It's, it's hard. Uh, people say sticks and stones uh, may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. And people say that because they're trying to convince themselves of something that's obviously not true. Um, sticks hurt, but words hurt far worse. Uh, and, and many times. I mean, the, the pain of words can be so much deeper than even physical attack. And so we try to convince ourselves that that's not the case. But words do hurt. Uh, telling lies about people over and over and over, I mean, it hurts them. Uh, they're, they're being falsely accused of all sorts of things. And so what does Peter do? What does he do to give them hope in the midst of that? How does he shape their identity? Well, he does this by calling them, in the very first verse of his, his letter, elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, what, what is an exile? Um, there are only two uses of this Greek word, uh, one in the Greek Old Testament and one in the Greek New Testament, as far as the Bible is concerned. And both of them are talking about Abraham. Um, the second one is in Hebrews 11.13. The first one is in Genesis 23.4. And they're dealing with Abraham as, as a foreigner. Right? Abraham left his homeland, Canaan, or uh, not Canaan, he left his homeland of Ur, and he traveled down to Canaan, and he's in the land of promise, but it's not his land. He hasn't been given it as a possession yet. He's just simply traveling through. He's not at home. He's a foreigner. And so the, the main sense of that word that, that the ESV translates as exile is actually a foreigner. Exile has that sense of being forcefully cast out. Foreigner is just you're not at home. That's the basic sense. And that's more what we should think of when we hear the word exile. Someone who is not at home. That's why I call this uh, strangers in a strange land or uh, a heavenly home for the homeless. Christians are to think of themselves as being not at home in this age, in this life. Uh, he, he says that the entire Christian life should be thought of uh, in those terms, in, in verse 17 of chapter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And what is the time of our exile? It, it's our entire life on this world, uh, in this world, in this age. It's a time of being a foreigner, being exiled. Um, the whole letter, in fact, is framed by this. The very first verse, he says, we are elect exiles. And then the second to last verse says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Well, what happens when you invoke Babylon? You might just kind of read over that and kind of gloss over that. But Babylon is the place where Israel went in exile. And so that's another way of evoking this idea of being in exile. So the entire letter has these two bookends to, to, to remind us of this fact. We are foreigners as Christians in this world, in this age. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter uses that word again, foreigner. But he also adds another one. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he adds that word, sojourner. Uh, what is a, a sojourner? Uh, a sojourner is a word that's also used elsewhere in Scripture. It shows up in the New Testament in a few places. Uh, the Israelites, when they were down in Egypt, in the book of Acts, are described as being sojourners. Um, Moses, when he fled Pharaoh's wrath, and he's in Midian, 
He's called a sojourner in the book of Acts. That's Acts 7.29. Very interesting use of this word is in Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians, and this is chapter 2, verse 19, Paul is talking about Gentiles who once were cut off from, as he calls it, the, the commonwealth of Israel. Ephesians 2.12. Gentiles were outside of the nation of Israel. They're outside the commonwealth of Israel. But now, he says in verse 19, you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Um, strangers, that's the word there. Strangers is the word that in First Peter is called uh, sojourners. It's translated as sojourners. I think that's a very significant one because Paul is trying to make this, this, um, this argument for Gentiles having brought into the true Israel of God. He says, you had no rights in Israel. You had no citizenship rights in Israel when you were outside of Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God. But now by faith in Jesus Christ, you've been brought into Christ and you have all of the privileges of citizenship in Christ. All the privileges of being a citizen of the true and heavenly Israel of God. So if you are a sojourner, you don't have those rights. You don't have those privileges. And, and that's what it means to be a Christian, is that we don't have citizenship rights in this world. Uh, we are not at home. That's what's conveyed by the, the word exile. But more than that, it's more than just not being at home. We can't stand on our rights because we don't, in a certain sense, have any. Rights, And that's a, it's kind of a scary thing for an American, I think, uh, to, to say that because our entire nation is founded right on certain rights, inalienable rights that we have. Well, as a Christian, we are lacking those rights because we're not at home. Uh, we don't have the rights, uh, as it were, of, of this world and this age. Well, I want to unpack that, um, but I want to keep that idea in mind that as a foreigner, we are non-citizens non-citizens in this world. We, we lack rights. And that's the way the word is used, even in secular usage. If you're not a citizen, if you're a sojourner, you are in a country that's not your home and, and you don't have citizenship, and so you don't have the privileges that the citizen has. Just like um, Paul has certain privileges, right? He's a Roman citizen, so he has those privileges. Um, well, if you don't have those privileges, the government can do whatever they want to you. They can uh, kill you, they can beat you without a trial, and so on. That's the, uh, the danger of not having these privileges. Um, what I really want to look at, though, the, the focus of this is to ask ourselves the question, what is it like as a Christian to be a foreigner and a sojourner? What is it like to be a foreigner and someone without uh, the citizenship rights of this age. This is going to be a bit of a whirlwind tour through First Peter to, to see this. But there's three things I want to focus on. Uh, to be a foreigner and uh, to be a sojourner, so exile and sojourner, is, first of all, to be homesick. Second of all, to be different from the world. And finally, to, as we've already said, to lack full citizenship rights. We're going to unpack those three. To be homesick, to be different from the world, and to lack full citizenship rights. <clears throat> Foreigners long for home. That's the basic idea. They long for home, and our home is in heaven. Our home is in the new creation. 
Now, it is this world, but it's not this world in this age, as it is now, tainted and fallen. Uh, it's the world as it will be remade when Christ returns, and the new creation is brought in in its fullness. That's our home. That's where our citizenship lies, and we're not there now. So we, as Christians, as those who are foreigners, are meant to feel that. Uh, if we don't feel that, then there's a problem, because we are becoming too comfortable in this world. We're, we're trying to, to stake our claim here. If we don't feel that homesickness for heaven, it's because we've made this our home. And we, we're, we're quite comfortable, aren't we? Uh, that's, that's a temptation for every Christian. So Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you then. And that's, that kind of shapes everything he says in this letter. Keep setting your heart on grace that's going to come to you when Jesus Christ returns. You know, this is a, a life of, of hardship and struggle. It's a life of trial, he says. And so the only way you're going to find hope is if you're setting your hope on grace to be revealed to you in the future. The, the grace of the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. And that really sums up for Peter, uh, everything he said at the beginning of chapter 1, um, we have this salvation in Jesus Christ, but he describes it as an inheritance. It's waiting for us in heaven. We haven't received the fullness of this salvation yet. Uh, it's, it's stored there. It's uh, guarded. God guards us. He gives us faith, and that faith is what sustains us and guards us until that last day when we receive that inheritance. We receive that fullness of grace in Jesus Christ on that last day. Salvation for Peter is in the future. That's not to deny that salvation is also something that happened to us in the past, um, something that's, that God is continuing to do for us. But salvation, the fullness of salvation is in the future. And if we set our hope on the things of this world, um, then we will uh, not only be disappointed, but we're setting our, our, our hope on something that is, that is just fading away. That's what he says in chapter 1. Uh, the, the, the treasure of Jesus Christ is a treasure that is kept in heaven, verse 4. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I'll re return to that point. Um, the, the nature of our inheritance. Uh, but for now, just look at uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Just this idea of, of homesickness. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. That day in which we will receive the inheritance. He, he's teaching the Christian to look forward, to place the Christian's hope in the future, because the end of all things is near. Eternally speaking, uh, the return of Christ is coming soon. And so he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And that's a, that's a good connection between this first point and the second point. Um, we, we're to be homesick. What does that mean? It means to be heavenly-minded. Uh, to be homesick as a, as a foreigner is to be heavenly-minded. And it's to cause us to live in a certain way. And that, that way is to be different from the world. To be different. To be an exile and a sojourner is to be different. Foreigners know this, right? 
Um, I've only had limited experience of this. I, I lived in England for three years. I lived in Canada for a year and a half. And um, so I've, I've got a limited experience of this. My wife uh, lived in Russia as a child uh, for, for five years. Uh, but when you're in another country, some of you have probably experienced this. It's, it's not your home, and you just find that you don't quite fit in, in little ways and in big ways. And so I would find, uh, when we lived in England, that we, we speak the same language, and you think, okay, I mean, it's going to be pretty easy to fit in. Same with Canada. We speak the same language. We have the same basic cultural heritage. So it shouldn't be that difficult. But in some ways, it makes it even harder. Um, because the, the little differences, you don't expect that. Like walking into shops in, in Britain and feeling like the people there are, are upset that you are buying something from them. I couldn't get over that. They always felt mad at me for, for, for buying their, their stuff. And I never could figure that out. Now, I had some experience in Philadelphia of that as well. Um, <laughs> but I, I felt it all the more in England. Um, I, I never quite figured out what it was. I, I, it's just a, some aspect of, of their demeanor um, made me think they, they hated me when I walked into their stores. Um, in Canada, we, we lived in Canada for a year and a half, and they do this interesting thing where, where they, um, they don't have milk jugs. They have milk bags. You buy a bag, you snip off a corner of the bag, you put it in a little plastic uh, pitcher, open, you leave it open, and there's no way to close it after you've done this, and you just pour your milk out of these little bags. So that's strange for an American. Um, milk jugs are strange for a Canadian. You know, that's a very small thing, but you start to, to, all these things start to build up over time, and you start to feel, okay, this isn't my home. And it's hard to get over that feeling because um, of all of those little things, and then all of those big things as well. Um, there are much bigger things um, as well that can then cause you to, to, to realize you don't fit in. Um, as a Christian, we're supposed to feel that way. We're supposed to feel that way, and even more than that, we must internalize that. That we are different from the world. That we don't fit in. That we are foreigners. Um, look at some examples of, of how Peter unpacks this. What does it mean to be different from the world? What does it mean to be a foreigner? Chapter 1, verse 17, which we've read I'm going to read verses 17 to 19. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, so we have this amazing inheritance in Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed away. That's the inheritance that, that Peter was talking about in verse 4. It's, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Um, what do we do as a Christian? We, we, we have to keep fixing our heart on that reality. But that's what's waiting for us. The things of this world are perishable. They will, they will pass away. They will not last forever. They are in many ways corrupted, but our inheritance is undefiled, Peter says. It's pure, it's holy, um, it is unfading. Well, the things of this world are fading, they're decaying, they're not eternal, they will pass away. It's so easy for us to set our hearts on those kinds of things and to find our hope in our earthly treasure, our earthly inheritance. And we have to keep going back to that 
the same saving truth. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. The salvation that we have in him, having been ransomed from our uh, sin, from the condemnation that we deserved in Jesus Christ, to be given this wonderful inheritance. But the things of this world will start creeping in. If this is not a daily practice for us, think about that eternal inheritance. Think about the fact that this is a time of exile. This is a time of foreign living. And that these things will pass away. That's why Peter says in chapter 2 that we must abstain from the passions of the flesh. We must be different from the world. Um, we even might suffer for this. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says that you might suffer for righteousness sake. Uh, but you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed even in the midst of that suffering for righteousness' sake. Um, I think often it's easy to become fearful uh, that people are going to, to think that we are maybe um, the dreaded word fundamentalist or something like that. So we, we don't want to be different from the world. We want to show them, hey, we're, we're kind of like you. Um, we, we watch the same movies, we, um, we do the, the same things, same TV shows, we, we do everything like you because we want you to, to think, okay, we're not such weird people, right? We're not such uh, bad people. Um, and, uh, and so you can just very easily, subtly, day after day, be just like the world. Um, no difference at all for the Christian. Um, we can't be like that. And, and that, that tag, that's one of those tags that people will put on you. You're a fundamentalist or you're a bigot. Or, or whatever. They'll say those things about you. You'll be maligned as people are being maligned in, in Peter's day. You'll suffer as a Christian if you pursue what is righteous. Now, Peter gives us a very good example of this in chapter 4. How does this work out? This is chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That should be expected. Uh, when you don't join the world, even just simply abstaining from those things, when you don't join in with them, they're going to malign you. They're going to mock you. They're going to say um, evil things about you. Uh, I think the reason for that is no one likes to be shown that the way they're living um, is somehow disapproved of. It's painful, right? Um, we all feel that in, in some way. I mean, even just in little ways. If someone does something that we don't do, and we think, oh, they think they're better than us. Um, well, that's, that's what's going on here. They, they, they sense that. If you withdraw from that, if you separate yourself from the, the, the things of this world, people will mock you for that. There's no way around that unless you don't separate yourself from the things of this world. But to be a foreigner is to be separate. It's to be different. And, and this requires us getting over that fear of being labeled whatever, a fundamentalist or, or whatever it is. Now, we have to be careful that we, we suffer for righteousness' sake, 3.14, and not just because we are an evildoer. Um, in chapter 4.15, Paul says... Uh, Peter rather says, make sure that you are not suffering as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. You know, you actually deserve to suffer for those reasons, is what he's saying. Um, make sure it's because you're actually different. 
than the world. That that's why, why you're suffering. You're not even having to throw this in people's faces. You're not going to have to go around telling people, I'm so much better than you, um, uh, and, and just kind of ostentatiously show this to people. Just simply living as, as Christ commands is going to make you different. And it's going to bring down the disapproval of the world. To be a foreigner, uh, to put this differently, is to be holy. It's as simple as that. It's to be holy. It's to be set apart from the world. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be holy. The word itself just simply means to be separate, uh, to be different than the world. Okay, finally, to be in exile and, and to be a sojourner is, as I've said, to lack full citizenship rights. Um, it's to be a non-citizen, we can put it that way. It's to be a non-citizen or a temporary sojourner. Now, if you were not a Roman citizen in Peter's day, and you were living in the Roman Empire, you would feel this, as I said already. They lacked legal protections. People could, uh, the governing officials could do pretty much whatever they wanted to a non-citizen. They had no rights, they had no protections. That's a really good way to think about being a Christian, is we don't have the rights and protections that we probably desire, where we can just stand on our rights, and, and, and we can appeal to um, the governing authorities to come and rescue us and deliver us. It doesn't work that way. We don't have those rights because we're not at home. We're not in our homeland, where our heavenly citizenship is. And I think of a good example of this. It might be less drastic today than in the Roman Empire, where they could just beat you up, or they could kill you, you had no rights. But think about this. Think about someone who is, now I'm not making a political point at all here. Uh, just think about this uh, from the perspective of someone who has come into the country and they, they snuck into the country and they don't have citizenship. How does that person feel? They feel fearful. They're afraid that at any moment uh, the police might come to their door and they might take them and they might send them back to that country they fled from, fleeing from you know, whatever dangers they were, they were fleeing from. And so they live in fear. They live um, with this sense that at any moment um, they could be rounded up, so on, like that. Um, that's what it means to not be a citizen, to not have those rights. That's kind of a, a dramatic instance of that. But I think that helps us as Christians to think about living in this world. We can't stand on those rights that we don't have. Uh, Peter unpacks this in a variety of ways. Chapter 2, verse 19. He's talking about servants and masters here. He says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. The, the, the servant here is suffering unjustly. That's what it means to not have rights. He, 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 he feels that, right? This shouldn't be happening to me. I shouldn't be suffering this way. I shouldn't be experiencing all these things. It's wrong. But who is he going to appeal to? He has no one to appeal to. He can't appeal to the government to come and, and, and uh, assert his rights for him. Um, he suffers unjustly and yet endures. 
That's what the Christian should expect in this age, to suffer unjustly. And yes, we do have someone to appeal to. We have someone to appeal to, to God Almighty who hears our prayers and who will show justice. But not now. He, he, he tells us to wait, to wait patiently as a foreigner who can't stand on his or her rights now. We have to wait for the establishment of those rights. God will vindicate his people in the end. But for now, it's a time of patient waiting on that day. Um, Christians should expect to suffer unjustly. Um, look at uh, chapter 1 again. This is verses 6 and 7. This, this first instance where he talks about trials, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do all Christians suffer? Uh, must a Christian suffer? Do you ever ask that question? Do you ever ask, um, why am I not suffering as much as Christians in China? Um, why am I not suffering as much as Christians in Nigeria? You start to think, well, may maybe I'm not even a Christian. Maybe um, none of us are. Maybe it's, it's, it's suffering of the essence of being a Christian. Because Peter says that we should not be surprised. We should expect this. As Christians, as foreigners, this is, this is our lot. So I'm sure you've asked that question before. Why, why am I not suffering? Now, many of you I know have suffered, and so it's not at all to diminish that. But what Peter says is that you suffer if necessary. I think that's a really important qualification. You suffer if necessary for a very specific purpose. The suffering that God places in, in each one of our lives is going to look different. For each of us in this room, it's going to look different. For Christians in different parts of the world today and different parts of, of the world throughout history, suffering has been different. But God knows exactly what each believer needs. He gives to that person what is necessary. If necessary, you will suffer this amount. If necessary, you will suffer this amount. And God is not making us suffer for no reason. It is to change us, to transform us. He uses that, that language of testing, which is refining, taking gold and purifying it, uh, getting the impurities off. You, you melt the gold down, the impurities come to the surface, you scrape the impurities off. That's what God is doing in our suffering. And he knows how much each one of us needs in order to be purified, in order to be made more like Jesus Christ, in order to take our eyes off of the things of this world and place them onto our, our wonderful Savior and, and his all-sufficiency. He does this so that we will have the grace to persevere because this life is going to be a life of, of hardship and suffering. So he purifies us, Peter says, um, so that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, verse 9, the salvation of our souls, the final and full salvation when, when Christ returns, when we die, when we go to be with him. This is what each one of us needs. So if necessary, God is going to give you the exact amount of suffering that you need. And same with Christians elsewhere. So we don't have to, to do this kind of uh, thing where we compare our suffering to the suffering of others and we think, okay, they suffer so much that they must be the only faithful Christians. God knows. He knows what we need. And he even, Peter even says that suffering causes us to cease from sin. Very interesting phrase in chapter 4. Causes us to cease from sin. If we respond 
to suffering, in faith at least. Now, you can respond in, in bitterness and in anger, and th that will not be the case. But if you respond in faith and in repentance, when, when suffering comes your way, God will use that to grow you and cause you to cease from sin, to even be more and more sanctified. That's the, the very reason he puts these trials in our lives. So if we ask our, ourselves the question, why do we experience any number of trials? Why do Christians across the world experience trials? It's because we are foreigners and we lack citizenship rights in this age, on this earth. Our citizenship, Paul says in Philippians 2, is in heaven. It's not here. And we should expect to suffer unjustly, not being able to stand on our rights. And the, the example that, Jesus, or that Peter gives is Jesus. Of all people, Jesus had the, the right to not suffer. He, he, he had never sinned. He could stand on his rights. He, he should have been able to stand on his rights, but he didn't. He didn't stand on his rights because had he done that, he would not have saved us. He would not have gone to the cross if he had stood on his rights. He, he suffered unjustly, the supreme example of suffering unjustly. Now, for purposes of time, I'm actually not going to talk about the state here, as, as interesting as it is, because Peter has a, um, um, an important section where he talks about what it means to be a foreigner and to relate to the, to the state, but that's, uh, that's going to have to be for, for another time. I want to kind of bring this all together um, by, by thinking about this in terms of our own situation in America. Uh, tr the trials in First Peter look to me very similar to the kinds of things that are going on in America today. Um, Christians in America, I mean, no doubt there's going to be individual differences, but Christians are not facing the same kinds of trials that we see, say, in China or in Nigeria. Christians typically are not in danger of their lives in, in America. Um, in fact, I, I don't really know of examples um, where that's the case, apart from individuals who maybe are deranged and things like that. Um, but, but we do see, right, we see florists, we see bakers, we see photographers, it's all been in the news. Um, things to do with, with human sexuality um, and taking a stance that the Bible takes. The world maligns Christians for those things, uh, mocks them. Christians do suffer. They suffer the loss of, of income, the loss of jobs, the loss of social prestige, um, the loss that, you know, that wasn't the case 50 years ago. It was much easier to be a Christian in public and even in many places to be respected for that. But it's not the case anymore. It's very similar to what's going on in First Peter. Um, constantly being um, maligned and, and, and mocked and facing that kind of difficulty. And what does Peter say? He says in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But isn't that what we, we often do? Why is this happening? This is not how it's supposed to be. But Peter says that's exactly what you should expect. No, it's not how it's supposed to be. But you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. And he's not just saying because these things happen. He's saying because these things happen to Jesus. And you belong to Jesus Christ. And if these things happen to Jesus, 
they're going to happen to you as well. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he says, don't suffer as an evildoer. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is what foreigners and sojourners should expect in this age to face these kinds of trials. But we can rejoice because we know what's coming on the other end of those trials. Uh, We know that these trials are even being used by God to change us, to purify us, to remove that remaining sin that clings so closely to us. That's the grace and the only grace to endure the shame that comes our way for standing faithfully on God's word. What is one of the main things in our world that causes people to shrink back from Jesus Christ? To shrink back from openly confessing Him? We don't want to be labeled a bigot. We don't want to be labeled uh, transphobic, fundamentalist, whatever it is. We don't want that, so we kind of, we shrink back and we think, I'm I'm not going to talk to people about this. I'm not going to speak about Christ. Um, I don't want those things to be said to me, because they're not true. I don't hate these people. And yet... I'm called all these horrible names. This exhortation is is vital for us, that we would not shrink back from Jesus Christ. We should expect these trials. And then what Peter said in in chapter 3, be prepared to make a defense. If you're not ready, you're going to shrink back. If you're not ready to make a defense, people will use that text, be prepared to make a defense, and they'll say this is a a great text about apologetics, and, and certainly it's relevant for that, but even more, it's, it's a word for those who see themselves to be foreigners in this world. Um, because our temptation is going to be to pull back from our confession. To not be ready to openly confess Christ. That's going to be our temptation. And it's a very powerful temptation, as we're seeing today. Um, to, 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 to be f- afraid to be marginalized in, in those ways. And, and to be mocked and shamed and all of those things. But suffering... When it comes our way, it's God's will for our lives. We're not going to always know why, but we know that God is doing good. How does, how does Peter bring it all to a, a close? He says, chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's it. When we suffer these trials, we must humble ourselves under God, knowing He is doing good for us and for the advancement of His kingdom. He's glorifying ourselves even as we trust Him. He's glorifying Himself even as we trust Him in the midst of those trials. Um, our brothers and sisters across the world, as Peter says in, in 5.9, are suffering even worse things. And this is to be expected. But only for a little while. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the note I want to end on here. 
in light of eternity, these, these trials, these struggles, these mockings, these malignings, all these things, it's only for a little while. This is not eternal. It seems like it's never going to end when you're in the midst of it. It seems unendurable, but it's not. Because God is he's changing you, and He's glorifying Himself as we trust Him. And after a little while, God Himself, the God of all grace, will call us to Himself, to eternal glory. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Everything that we lost, because we openly confess Christ, will be restored. God's people will be vindicated before the whole world. And we'll ultimately say we lost nothing. We lost nothing by confessing Christ, by clinging to Christ by faith, no matter what the world says about us, no matter what they do to us. This suffering is only for a little while. And that's, that's the only way that we will find grace to endure as foreigners in this world, is to remember that and to keep looking forward. Keep looking forward to the grace to be revealed in the end. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we bless you, the God of all comfort and grace, God who has showered your love and your mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would please bless each one of us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the grace to endure suffering and trials and false things that are said about us as, as believers in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would strengthen us as we look to Jesus himself. We think of what he endured, the hostility and suffering that he endured for our sakes. Pray that you would fill us with strength and with joy to consider our Savior, to consider that eternal inheritance, unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for us. And as we do that, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in our eyes, in our hearts. Pray this all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, questions. Are there, are there any um, questions about this or anything anyone thought to bring up? Maybe I'll come down here now. Wait, I can tell you go. <laughs> I know that look. Yeah. Sorry. I saw a hand back here. I was going to ask, do you think that it in some ways presents a challenge for Christians to live in the United States or have a representative form of government of certain rights? Yeah. And we want to defend those rights politically right. on the one hand, but we also want to have this mentality of exiles on the other hand. Yeah. No, I think it's very hard. Um, I think it's very hard for Americans because our entire political system is is founded on that, like you said. Um, now, they're, they're, you know, government, uh, this is what I didn't have time to go the government is a good thing that God has ordained. You know, it's, it's a part of his common grace that you can appeal to governing officials for justice, and, and that's right. But we still have to recognize that, um, that that's not our ultimate hope. And I, I think we have to be careful because it's, it's easy to be kind of lulled into complacency, I think, as an American, I think, you know, the government will always take care of us. Uh, we have these rights and no one can take them away from us. But they can be taken away, and I think we're probably seeing that more and more. Um, and so we need to be ready. It's, it, it's somewhat unusual, I think, in the history of the church to have the, the level of freedom that Americans have enjoyed. Um, that's kind of an anachronistic thing. And so, even Americans need to, to see themselves, to, to shape their own identity as, as exiles, as 
as those who are not at home, don't have those rights. Now, it's hard though. It's hard to have that, that balance. Now, I see the look of contemplation. Let me just echo on the gentleman's comment and your comment. You know, it's our, you know, uh, as Americans, we do, I think, come let us reason together. Uh, you know, look what God has done using the, the scriptures as a reference and, and using it for a, a, a bridge into sharing the gospel and, and the, the purpose to return to the values that we love uh, distinctly. You know, did that make sense? So, so just using the scriptures in some ways has shaped our values even in our culture and things like that. Is that yeah, and see the erosion, let's say, but say, you know, like over here is why why we embrace these things. So it's a, it's a reasoning and a persuasion, not right. just I didn't, you know, uh, stalling out in a, in a dysfunctional sense, but, right. but we use it as a bridge, but, but not dogmatically, I think, is, is, your, is your, your point, because we are in the corners. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to um, yeah, our interactions with other people, the, the note in Peter is he keeps coming up with that kind of idea being humble, um, being ready to, to present uh, what we believe to others, and, um, and, and needing to do that because they're going to see us as strange in, in many ways. Um, yeah, we have to have a humble disposition, a confident one, but we want a humble one. Yeah, and I guess <coughs> throw love in there, right? Yeah, yeah. No, we do, we do it out of love. We've been rescued from. Yeah. Peter says, from all that, 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 those things that they'll mock us for not doing anymore, that was us before, and we've been rescued from that. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, it's, I don't think that's what we're doing. We're not shaming them so much as, as like we, we argue them into shame, but it's just simply the fact that we are living in a certain way um, and we are speaking the truth to them. That itself is going to shame them. If, if they see us living the way we actually claim to be living. Um, now, they might not like that. They might not even confess that or admit that, but still... Um, God has made them in His image, and so there, there's going to be that sense of being shamed because they're living in that that one way, and, and, and we're saying um, even just by withdrawing from that um, that that's wrong. So I, th I think that's probably what's going on. There's a sense of um, shame because they see you living righteously, and just the very act of you being different is going to, to bring shame to them. No, they might kind of suppress that. But it's going to be there. Yeah. Well, before that. Yeah, and you know, I, I remember a good example from a, a good friend of mine growing up. He, his dad worked at an energy company for years, and uh, there was a, a co-worker, and, uh, and he would pass things around um, that were not um, good um, in the office. Let's just put it out. And, um, and, and my friend's dad was a Christian, and he would always say no. And his co-worker was, was offended. 
was shamed by that. Um, but his response was to get angry. But he was—it was because he was ashamed of what he was doing. Ultimately, and it was years later, maybe even a decade later, he became Christian, and he actually said that you know that at the time really was significant for him was that he, you know, he felt that sense of shame, even though he tried to pretend that he didn't, and that that actually was something that the Lord used slowly but surely to, to bring him to faith. So I, I think that's kind of the, the, the what's going on with that. You know, what's interesting is, is this idea of the persecution. When you look at the first, you know, second century, third century, all the way up to, you know, Constantine, mm -hmm. massive persecution right. of the church. But it grew like crazy. Yeah. Throughout well, North Africa, Europe, uh, the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there were, you know, right now in our Sunday school class, we're going through the creeds and the formation and how they were holding on to the, these ideas. And, but yet, and here, you know, you talk about what here in the United States, we don't do what they have in China or what's going on in Nigeria. But you look at the persecution that had happened in China. Mm. The church grew. Yeah. Underground, but it just kept on growing. Yeah. And with, here in the United States, we've become somewhat lackadaisical as the church. Yeah. I, that's why it's so important that you come back to this idea of, of being forced. Because it's not, it's not as easy for us to see. I think if you live in northern Nigeria or you live in China, you're confronted with that every day. You can't escape it. But for us, it's easy to escape in, in some ways. We can kind of live a comfortable, easy life by just sort of withdrawing and not engaging. And I think it's one of the things that Peter wants to say is don't pull back. Engage because that for us that's going to be the, the temptation. Yeah, and, and, the, and the Lord uses that struggle to grow His church. Um, is the church is it growing in America? I, don't, I mean, maybe the the ease that we've had for so long is is harming us quite a bit, um, and maybe that's one of the reasons we see the church diminishing. Um, is that that very ease? invite you to come to our fellowship hall. We've got snacks. We've got, uh, we've got drinks. Uh, Terry even brought us some soft drinks if you're, if you're needing a sugar and caffeine fix. Uh, and then tomorrow morning, um, the doors will open. I think they'll later than 9 a.m. We'll probably be here a little earlier than that. Uh, we'll have donuts uh, out and uh, hot coffee brewed. So uh, please uh, join us in the morning. Uh, look forward to spending some time with you out here in the lobby. So thank you. Yeah.